Hey, good morning. Good to see you this morning. We're going to do another short little series, three-part series on the Christian triad of virtues. What are the virtues of the Christian triad? Anybody know triad means three? So what would they be? Come on, help me. Well, I gave you number one. Faith, hope, and love. Love will fall on Valentine's Day. Isn't that nice? So we'll be talking about love on Valentine's Day. But today we're going to talk about faith. What is faith? And this is what I want you to take away from today, okay? Bottom line, when we trust God, in other words, when we take him at his word, it pleases him and it also strengthens our heart. Did you know that? When we trust God, it pleases him and it also strengthens our heart. Now what I want to do is lay that out, show you from the Hall of Faith chapter in God's Word, Hebrews chapter 11, that's where we'll be, so you can turn there this morning. We're going to discover what this means to trust God. Now, why do we not trust God? Let me give you a few reasons why sometimes we hear God's truth or we hear a promise from God, and then all of a sudden we decide, it's hard for me to trust him. Why? Well, it could be because of fear. Sometimes fear does strange things to us. We have experiences in our life and we say, well, I know what this did to me before, so I can't believe God. Maybe it's because we worry that things will fall apart. You know, if we trust God and do what he says, then maybe things won't turn out like we think they will. They'll just crumble. Sometimes we worry that we'll fall apart. You know, if we follow God, we obey him, we do what he says, life will turn in the opposite direction. Sometimes it's because of our family origin. For many of us, things were out of control in our families growing up. We felt helpless. Some cases we were problematic, we were troubled, and therefore since we couldn't trust our family circumstances, we can't trust God. Sometimes it's because of past betrayals. People may have done us wrong in the past, and we don't want to trust God in the future. Sometimes it can be because of a distorted image of God. Listen to this one. Sometimes we have this fairy tale view of God in the Christian life that everything is supposed to be rosy, work out. We're always supposed to be filled with joy, and everything is lovely. And if we don't feel that, we think that something is disconnected. We're going to learn today that, as a matter of fact, the Christian life is oftentimes filled with struggle, discouragement, depression, the desire to quit, to give up, and to not trust. Exactly. (laughs) Also, sometimes there's a lack of stillness and silence in our life, and that causes us to not trust. Did you know that? And by the way, these wonderful little things here, the greatest distraction item in life, they pull us away, don't they? I mean, do you know how many hours a day you are captured by your phone? Do you, do you have any clue? Do you all get the little screen notification on Sunday morning that tells you how many hours a day you stay on your phone? Well, you can set that up, and you really should, because it's very... Do you know what the average time of a young person on their phone is? Anybody want to take a shot per day? Go ahead. Between 8 and 12 hours. What, what did you just read? Somebody just looked it up on Google. 
there, there range, but that's generally the range. Can you fathom that? How much time is spent on the screen of a phone? We can be distracted, and what does that do? It causes us not to trust God. We can also have this idea of perfectionism. In other words, if life isn't perfect, then we can't trust. Also, we have a limited view of letting go. You know, we have to be in control of things. And, you know, if we trust God, then we're not in control of things. And therefore, we don't trust him. And then sometimes we just flat out deny that God can be trusted. And by the way, sometimes believers do that as well. Well, I know what God says, but nevertheless, I know how I feel. Well, there's a story about a lady in a Midwest town. Her name was Miss Jones. She had the distinction of being the oldest resident in town, so when she died, the editor of the local newspaper wanted to print a little article about this older lady because she had lived so long in her community. The problem was he couldn't find anything to say about her. So what did he do? He went down to the local restaurant and he asked some people, you know, do you know anything about Miss Jones? They didn't know. He went to the funeral director and said, do you know anything about Miss Jones? And they said, we really don't know. So he went to a sports editor because he was struggling to find anything to write about dear Miss Jones who lived longer than anybody else. And he said, this is your assignment today. You are to write an article about this dear lady from a sports perspective. So here's what he wrote. Here lie the bones of Nancy Jones, for her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid, she died an old maid. No hits, no runs, no errors. She just never did anything with her life. She never trusted God. She never stepped out on a limb. She never believed that God could really do anything through her, so she just existed. How many Christians are like that today? I mean, we don't really want to trust God. We don't want to ever take a step and think that God may be moving us to do something, maybe something great for him. Maybe God wants us to move in a direction of obedience for him. Maybe he wants us to move in a location for him. We have no clue. But we're so afraid that we will change things or something will happen or we won't be in control that we fail to trust God. And remember, when we trust God, it pleases his heart, and it does what? Strengthens ours. Now, one man, his name is Peter Marshall. He was a former chaplain of the United States Senate. Listen to what he wrote about modern-day Christians. He writes this, Christians today are like deep-sea divers encased in suits designed for many fathoms of deep, marching bravely forward to pull the plugs out of bathtubs. We have more information than we know what to do with and very little trust. Very little trust. How do we overcome that? Well, that's what I want to help you with today as we talk about faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, of course, is love. But faith also has its part. Now, I told you when we went through Hebrews chapter 10 that the author is actually laying out the last three chapters of the book And this is how he does it. He lays the argument out that Jesus is better. And therefore, since he's better, and since he is a great high priest, and since we can have confidence in him to enter the holy places, he gives three sermons. Listen to what he says. A three-point sermon in chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, and let us consider how to stir up one another 
to love and good works. Now, if you remember when I went through this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. He's going to lay that out in which chapter? 11. And then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Which chapter is he going to lay that out in? 12. Very good. And I'll guarantee you everybody will get the last one. Let us consider how to stir each other up in love and good works in chapter... Very good. Well, y'all are just on the ball this morning. Now, when we think about love, hope, and faith, and especially faith, how do you deal with it in this passage? It's one of the central passages in Scripture that talk about faith. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a definition of faith, a description of faith, some illustrations of faith, and six characteristics, which is the heart of the message, of people who live by faith. And in the little part that you can't see up there, I'm going to do it all in 35 minutes, starting right now. I know you don't believe me, but that's my goal. Six characteristics of people who live by faith. Now, how would you define faith? Well, this is probably the best definition of faith I have ever come across. It's not mine. It's from somebody else, but it's kind of condensed down and changed slightly, so added a little bit. But faith is basically... Confidence that things yet future and unseen will happen exactly as God said they would. That's faith. God says something's going to happen. We believe him that it's going to happen just exactly like he says. That is what it means, folks, to have faith. Although we can't see it, we can't measure it, God is going to make it happen. And when you and I trust God and we take God at his word, that is called exercising faith. Faith, believing that God will do what he says he's going to do. Clearest definition that I can give. Now, one man wrote, The world fails to realize that faith is only as good as its object. Are you all following me? Faith is only as good as its object. Many, many people have faith. They have faith flying planes into towers. The World Trade Center, those Islamic men had faith. Believing that if they died as a martyr, what would happen to them? They would go into celestial paradise, as all Islamic faith teaches, that they would then encompass 72 virgins that they would be able to live with throughout eternity. That's what they believe. They had faith. And they flew their jets into the towers, and they died. And they experienced the greatest disappointment ever. Because that is not reality. However... The world fails to realize that faith is only as good as its object, and the object of our faith is the God of the Bible, not of man's imagination, of the Bible, of revealed truth, written in text, inscribed in Scripture, that has been around since the ages of time and will never go away. Jesus said, Not one jot or tittle of my word will pass until it's all fulfilled. No man can stop that. No movement can stop that. No nation can stop it. God's word will stand. Faith is not some feeling that we manufacture. It's our total response to what God has revealed in his word. This is the basis of our truth, the basis of our life. This is truth, folks. Listen, this is truth. If you want to know what truth is, this is it. You hold it in your hands. And when we place faith in what God said, that is what it means to please God. 
Faith is to a Christian what a foundation is to a house. It holds everything up. And it gives us confidence and assurance that he will stand. So what is a description of faith? This comes from Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read the first three or four verses and then explain what I wrote on the screen. The writer says in verse... I'm going to go back to chapter 10, verse 39. Because remember, in this letter, he's writing to people who are given up. People who have lived their Christian life for a while and they're ready to go back in another direction. He says, stop and don't do that. We are not of those who quit and go back. You know, there's problematic passages in Hebrews we've talked about. They call them the warning passages. There's five of them. And some of those passages trouble believers, making them think they can lose their salvation. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there is a crossroads in every believer's life. And you're going to choose one way to go as a believer. You're either going to choose to be faithful and follow the Lord, and you're going to have confidence and please God, or you're going to follow your own way. And when you do that, guess what happens? It leads to a life of dismay. By the way, there are a lot of Christians who enter that crossroads. We've had many come to our church. They get to a point in their life where they have to either be faithful, follow God and do what God says, even when it doesn't feel good, even when they don't think they're getting anything out of it, or they have to choose their own way. And unfortunately, we've had some that I know who are believers who have chose their own way and wandered from the path. And as a pastor, it breaks your heart to see people wander from the path. James tells us, go and find them and snatch them out of the fire. That doesn't mean the fires of hell. That means the fire of destruction. Their whole Christian life is going to go up in smoke one day when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for their Christian works. They will have nothing because it will go up in flames. So what does it mean? This author gets down to the point and says, verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. They received their praise. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we believe that. Do you, you understand that? Not one person, not one scientist, not one geologist, no one ever saw the creation of the earth. The only, the only beings who witnessed the creation of the earth that we know from Scripture are the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and angels or messengers that he had created who witnessed the formation of the earth. No one else saw it. And the text says God brought something out of nothing. Now, how do you, how do you fathom that? Well, you have to take it by faith that God did what he said he did. There's no way to try to prove that. The earth was created with age. The flood distorted all of the lines, all the geological formation. Totally, totally changed. Now we have evidence. And people want to speculate on that evidence. Well, go back to the first cause. Where did matter come from? You have to answer that question. By faith, we believe that matter came when God spoke it into existence. What do people who don't believe that believe? They believe that matter was eternal. 
and that it rubbed together and exploded, and now you have all this orderliness in creation, and you and I came from a wonderful monkey. Jay got his Ph.D. Congratulations. <clears throat> you all have heard the old saying about the fellow that struggled, you know, with what he believed. He said, uh, once I was a tadpole learning to swim. Then I was a frog with my tail tucked in. Then I was a monkey hanging from a tree. Now I'm a doctor with a Ph.D. <laughs> it's amazing what we believe, isn't it? But by faith, we have to trust that. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith brings praise from God, verse 2. And faith also pleases the heart of God. Look down in verse 6, and let me just cover this real quick. The writer here is talking about Enoch, and he makes this statement, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. In other words, if we don't take God at his word and trust him in what he says about life and truth, we can't please him. We have to take him at his word. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and also that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So, this is what it means to have a description of faith. What does faith look like? Well, faith is the foundation of things hoped for. Faith is the full conviction of that foundation of the things we can't see. Now, that doesn't mean that we have blind belief. We have evidence, folks. It's right here in God's Word. Please don't ever say that the Christian life doesn't have evidence. It's got 66 books of it. We just choose to believe what was written. To, to, not, to believe something without any kind of evidence is all, that is not faith, that's superstition. We don't base our truth, our beliefs, our convictions on myths. We believe it on what's written, what's revealed, what's here. This is the bedrock of our faith. And when we trust God, it pleases God's heart about what he says. Now, I have to stop here and ask you a question. What are you trusting to get you to heaven? What are you trusting? Now, a lot of people trust a lot of different things. Some people trust, you know, a little bit of faith in Jesus and then the way I behave and act, my, my behavior, or the way that I work or what I do or what I see as a result of my life. If that's what you're trusting in, you're falling way short. Because there is only one thing that you can trust in, according to God's word, to make sure that you know that you are going to spend eternity with God. And that is the righteousness of Jesus. That is it. The only way we can get into God's presence is to have the righteousness of Jesus put on our account. How do we do that? Listen, by faith. We believe that Jesus, God in flesh, went to a cross and died to pay the full payment for our sin. Past, present, and future. By the way, when he died 2,000 years ago, I have a little news flash for you. Every sin that you ever committed was future. You ever thought about that? Let that 
sit in for a while. The plane's still flying. You know, you weren't here 2,000 years ago, so when he died on the cross, he paid for your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin because all were future to him. And he did that through, for all of mankind. But we have to, by faith, believe that when he died on the cross, he died for me and in my place. And the word of God says that when he, when he died on the cross, he took the penalty of our sin and he took it all upon himself. All of it. Past, present, and future. And when we by faith trust his death on the cross as the payment for our sin, not only does he take our sin in the full payment price, he goes one step further. He gives something to us that we could never earn. And he gives it by grace. You know what it is? It's his righteousness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. Therefore, when you and I stand in God's presence, we don't just stand as someone who's had their sin forgiven. We stand as someone who is as righteous as Jesus. Now, you may think I'm making that up. Read 1 Corinthians where Paul says that he is our wisdom from God. He is our sanctification from God. He is our righteousness. And he gives that as a free gift to us. Now, by the way, how do you know that? Well, you have to, by faith, take God at his word that when God says he forgave us of our sin, he forgave us. Now, there are a lot of Christians that struggle with that. They, they may have trust Christ as their Savior and not understand the doctrine of forgiveness. They don't understand the doctrine of righteousness or imputation, God giving something to someone's account that they didn't earn. They don't fathom that. So when they sin again, they struggle and they just feel like they're lost again and they just wander around in their Christian life with no confidence. But God's here to drive the nail and say, drive the nail. Believe me. I took the full payment for your sin. And not only that, I gave you my righteousness. Now, by the way, as a believer, when, let me tell you something. When that sinks in, your life begins to change. You actually have confidence that the next time you sin, you're not lost. You're not going to hell just because you make a mistake, because you tell a lie, because you say something bad, because you don't do something that you should have done, or you do something you shouldn't have done. And you realize what it means to be in God's family and experience forgiveness, cleansing, and on top of all that, righteousness. I'm going to preach a whole series of messages on righteousness one day because, yes, I'm in love with that truth. I guess because when we know how unrighteous we are and he gives us his righteousness, wow, it makes us thankful. But by faith, we have to believe that. And when we do, we can press on and endure in life. Faith pleases the heart of God. Warren Wearsby writes, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But this kind of faith grows as we listen to his word. How does your faith become strengthened? A lot of Christians don't know this. Listen to what Paul said. Faith comes by hearing, and not just hearing something or hearing anything. Hearing the Word of God. 
You want to know why Christians struggle in faith? Because they don't feed it the Word of God. Can you imagine a person who didn't go to a table and eat? What would they look like? They would wither up. They would just turn into a bag of bones. Why? Because they're not feeding on food to nourish their body. A Christian's faith is the same way. Without feeding it God's Word, we don't strengthen. We have no nourishment. We have no muscle to our faith. So we have to listen to His Word and fellowship in worship and in prayer. When we do those three things, what happens to our faith? It strengthens Faith is possible to all kinds of believers in all kinds of situations. Listen carefully. It is not a luxury for a few elite saints. It is a necessity for all of God's people. A necessity. We all have to have it. Now, what are some illustrations of faith? Now, obviously, I cannot exposit all 46 verses of this passage. I can't do it. I'd never be able to do it in 35 minutes. That's why I told you last night, read this. Read the section. But I want you to notice how it's laid out. Here's what the author of Hebrews does. He tells his people, don't give up. Don't quit in your Christian life. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith actually is the foundation of things hoped for. And it's the conviction of things that are not seen. Now, let me go back in 6,000 years of history and show you people that didn't have half as much revelation truth as you do and still believe God. Now, this is what he does. Are y'all watching? Look at the screen. He talks about people who lived by faith before the flood. He talks about faith during Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talks about faith during the Mosaic period when they crossed the Red Sea when Moses was born. He talks about faith in subsequent eras, following Moses all the way down through the prophets and Daniel all the way to the life of Jesus. And then finally, for the most unfortunate chapter break in Hebrews, in chapter 12, he cuts it off at at Jesus. I, I wish I could go in and take chapters out of the Bible because that was a bad place to put chapter 12. Because he he climaxes with the greatest hero of faith, and that's Jesus. And this is the part I'm going to read to you now and preach on next week. Listen to what he writes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What's faith? Are y'all with me? What's faith? Oh, what's faith? Faith is the confidence that things yet future and unseen will happen as God revealed they will. Listen to what this author says. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? He is the one who pioneered faith, and he is the one who will bring it to completion. When the believer puts his eyes on Jesus, what happens? Our confidence grows complete. It grows complete. That's why he says we are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy 
that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He persisted in his life, and what happened? He was rewarded by God and was found to be faithful. So here are the illustrations of faith. Now, what I'm going to do, instead of going through all this and reading every bit of it, and then everybody going to sleep while I'm reading it, I'm going to just highlight one little section of this passage and then go back and share six characteristics. Listen to, I'm going to start reading in verse 32 of chapter 11. The writer says, after laying out this whole litany of people, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Who's Gideon? Who was Gideon? Gideon was the farmer who was scared to death to go out and fight the Midianites. As a matter of fact, he was so scared, he was hiding grain in a wine press, shaking it out. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Gideon, I want you to get everything together and go, he said, if you wanted us to go, then why did you let all these bad things happen? Why did you let it Gideon started pouting. Every time God tried to get Gideon to do something, what did he do? Laid out a fleece. Well, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Well, are you sure you want me to do that, Lord? You're, are you sure? On and on and on he went. And God finally whittled his army all the way down and fought for him. Barack. That's not Obama. Not Barack Obama, but Barak. Who was Barak? If you read in the book of Judges, he was one of the deliverers that would not go out and fight unless a woman went with him. You should go back and read the story. It's funny. She says, God says go and win. He says, I'm not going unless you're going. But if you go with me, I'll go. Barak. Samson. Who was Samson, by the way? I need to preach on some of this. Samson's name, Shimshung, means what? Sunshine. How did Samson die in his life? He died with his eyes gouged out. There's a play on words there. The man who was the sunlight died as one who couldn't see a thing. However, at the end of his life, he did more in his death than he ever did in his life. And he asked God to let him pull the Colosseum walls down to destroy the Philistines. Was he a great man of faith? Well, he had some faith at the end of his life. Didn't take much, did it? Did Gideon have a lot of faith? No, didn't take much. How about Barak? No. How about Samson? Jephthah. Wow, now this is a study case. Who's Jephthah? Well, he's the crazy guy who said, well, the, the next one that comes in, I'm going to sacrifice my daughter. He's a crazy man. You need to go back and read his story. And what happened? They came in and he had to follow through on his vow. Crazy man. But he had some faith. David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, what did they do? Through faith, through believing God, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Underline that one. These men were made strong out of weakness. That's what faith does. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Does that sound like victors to you? Kind of sounds like struggling people, doesn't it? He says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They didn't. God told them something was going to happen, and guess what happened, folks? They went their whole life, and God never came through on His promise in their life. Now hold on to that. I'm coming back because I'm, I'm getting ready to plow the ground here in a minute. They never received what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, in God's grand scope and plan, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, all the people who serve God, they were not going to experience the full blessing until we were able to be there and join it with them. We're not home yet. Now, in light of that, what are six characteristics of people who live by faith? Can I share them with you? Thank you. I'm I'm glad I can. Number one, they're people who take God at his word. In chapter 11, verse 11, Sarah, the, the barren woman, the wife of Abram, who God said he would make her fruitful and her descendants as the stars in the sky, and the sand on the seashore, had never had a child. Listen to what she did. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith, she believed God's character, that God would do what God said he would do. Now, by the way, as a pastoral note here, Don't claim this Sarah's promise. It wasn't given to you. It was given to her. You may have to search out something else, and maybe God will allow this to happen. This was a promise he gave to her to bring the nation of Israel into existence to eventually bring Jesus the Messiah into the world. So don't become disillusioned or disappointed disappointed by claiming a promise that's not yours. I'm sorry, I have to stop here for a minute. As a pastor, one of the most frustrating things in the world is when people say, go through the Bible and and highlight every promise of God and claim it for your own. You know, by the way, I teach biblical hermeneutics on a master's and a doctorate level. I'm sorry, that's why I don't have any hair on the top of my head. I, I hear people tell Christians that, and I say, please don't ever tell somebody that. Because that promise may not be given to you. And if you claim that promise and pray over that promise and believe God that He's going to do, that doesn't mean that promise is going to come true on your life. Because that promise wasn't given to you. That promise was given to one of God's servants in the past to bring about His plan to the present. We have to be cautious. Now, there are promises God gives to us. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark that one down, buddy. He'll be there. But that he's going to heal us. He's going to make us multiply. He's going to make us rich. He's never going to make us sick. Don't ever claim ridiculous things like that. 
Because that's not true. And you have a disillusioned view of God in the Bible. Don't do that. But we do take God at His word. And what did God tell Sarah He would do? He came to her and told her, I'm going to do this. And she had to wait years. But God finally did it. And one of the characteristics of people who live by faith is they take God at His word and they rightly interpret and understand what He means. And they claim the promises that, are gen- that go to us. But they don't claim things that are not. So they take God at His word. Faith is what enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. J. Oswald Sanders. Ooh, that's a good quote. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. The world doesn't understand that, folks. The second characteristic, they act upon what they know. Now, I just chronicled this. They act upon what they know. God revealed truth. They heard God's truth. What did they do with it? They acted on it. Listen to my homework. Verse 4, Abel offered a sacrifice. Enoch walked with God. Noah constructed an ark and delivered his family. Abraham obeyed and went to the land God promised. Sarah conceived because she believed. Jacob blessed his children because he knew God was going to do something through his twelve children. Joseph instructed the Israelites to take his bones back to the land because he knew that's where he was going to be resurrected, not Egypt. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and instead chose to be identified with God's people. Israel crossed the Red Sea. The Jericho walls fell down. By the way, they did not have a jackhammer on the Jericho walls. What did God tell them to do? March around it seven times on the last day. Stand back and blow the horn. God didn't need a Volvo excavator to go in there and tear the wall down. He broke it down. And by the way, if you've ever done research on the Jericho walls, they fell just exactly like God said they would. And they still, they've dug them up today. They found potsherds down in the walls and all kinds of evidence that the walls literally fell. But now let me tell you something. It would take faith to march around a huge wall like that, thinking that on the seventh time when you blow the trumpet, the walls are going to come down. They did that. They obeyed. They heard God's word. They obeyed. They acted on it. Rahab, what did she do? She welcomed the spies and she was delivered. By the way, what a rebuke Rahab would be to a bunch of Hebrew Jews. Why? Because she was a Canaanite. A Canaanite prostitute, by the way. Who believed God and had faith that God would do what he said he would do. So the second characteristic, people act upon what they know. The third characteristic, they allow God to turn weakness into strength. You know, I just came across that this week, and I was just reading through this over and over again. This one just never popped out to me. But, but I want you to hear me for a minute. Down in verse 34, Quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. Mm. 
That's actually what I should have preached in my sermon. I should have just had one line. Faith makes you strong, gives strength to, to weakness. Faith gives strength to weakness. Every one of these people that listed in Hebrews 11 struggled to trust. Did you know that? It's the, it's the fascinating thing about it. But every one of them had a mustard seed of faith. And what God did with that little bit of faith that they exercised in a great big God was he changed the world. Now, how many of us actually believe that God can change the world? You know, if I ask you this morning, and by the way, I'm, I'm not going to, so please don't raise your hand. But if I ask you this morning, how many of you believe that God could open the heart of someone that you know that you think is impossible, who would never become a Christian? How many of you think that God could do that? Well, I'm sure everybody here will go, I believe that, I believe that. Because, you know, I know what God says in his word. He save who he wants to say. Okay. How many of us act on that? All right, you ready? I, I got to pierce just a little bit because it convicted me because this is what I thought about. How many people do we actually share the gospel with in a year? I mean, how many people do we actually go up to and say, I just want to let you know something. God loves you. He has a plan. Jesus died for you. He wants to save you. Would you put, put your trust and faith in Him as your Savior? How many of us actually, how many people do we do that to in a year? Now, don't raise your hand. I did a little survey in my last ministry and found out that the average person only shared their faith about once every five years. Some of us will go, oh, I can't believe that. Don't let that shock you. Don't let it shock you. Let it motivate you. We believe Jesus saves people. We believe He wants to save them. We know it in God's Word. We have to act on it, don't we? That's what these people did. By faith, they took God at His Word and they weren't afraid. And they, they did what they were actually afraid to do. And when they did, God rewarded their obedience. Rewarded it. Number four, they're willing to finish life with unfulfilled expectations. Now listen closely. This is part of discipleship. This is part of growing as a Christian. It's the part that nobody wants to preach because it's so unpopular. Did you know that chances are, 90 plus percent chance, I would say probably greater, you're going to go through your life and never have all of your expectations fulfilled. You're not. And what, what you're going to have to do throughout your life, you're going to have to trust God that He is not going to do it in this life, but one day He will. All of the things that God said he's going to do, he will do in his time, but most of us will go to the grave and never have our expectations fulfilled. Now, you can think in your mind, well, I'm this and that. Nothing wrong with having goals. Nothing wrong. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the expectations that we have in life 
that we think are going to, you know, ultimately, this is what God tells us. Joy, hope, peace. We're going to have all that. I mean, we're probably not going to see that in this life. Look closely at verse 13 in chapter 11. Just color it. I told you there's a lot of information here. The writer says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Do you know that one of the characteristics of people who live by faith is they don't expect God to fulfill all of his promises here? They die in faith. Look down at the other verse, verse 39. I just read it. But how interesting this is. Two times he mentioned this. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, is that the Christian life that you hear about all the time? That you're going to live your life by faith, trusting a God you can't see, and the only evidence you have is what's written in His Word. And then you experience power in your life and change. But you know what? You're not going to receive all the promises that are in this Word. And some of us may have to die in faith before that happens. But even though we die in faith, we're still going to believe. You know, chances are, all of us who live to be old are going to die of bad health. And I I will guarantee you 100% chance you're going to die. I can tell you that this morning. That's one thing. I know you're going to die. I'm going to die. Are you still willing to believe and trust God even though your expectations aren't met? Well, let me tell you what he said twice. All these died in faith, even though they did not receive what was promised, because they knew that they would one day. What, what is a, this is a whole other sermon, what, what is a believer promised in the future? Well, we're promised to see God. We're promised to have a resurrected body. We are promised to live in eternal bliss. Did you hear me? No pain, no crying, no weeping, no suffering, no mourning, no depression, no loneliness. Won't that be wonderful? But let me tell you something. That's not true now. That is sometimes the call of a believer's life. Suffering, anguish. Hang in there, believer. We're not home yet. Did you hear me? We're not home. We're not home. The fifth, oh, well, I have to read Wearsby because it was so good. If God is glorified by delivering his people, he'll do it. If he sees fit to be glorified by not delivering his people, then he'll do that. But we must never conclude that the absence of deliverance means a lack of faith on the part of God's children. We must never conclude... That just because we're not delivered and something happens that we didn't plan or expect, that that means that we didn't have enough faith. You know, by the way, that's what faith healers tell you. Well, the reason this is not happening is because you don't have enough faith. Well, that's just simply not true. Fifth characteristic, they sense God's presence in both trials and victories. 
This is a part of the Christian life that's hard. Hard. I saw that, Chris. It's very hard, but they do sense God's presence in trials and victories. And the sixth characteristic, they learn to focus on Jesus. By the way, did Jesus have all of the promises fulfilled to him while he was here? You know, if you go back in the Old Testament, what does it say he'll do? It says the Messiah will go up in Jerusalem and he'll teach the law and people will come flocking to him. Sword will be laid down against sword. Nation will not rise against... Did Jesus see that? Absolutely he didn't. But did he know it was going to be true? Absolutely he did. And you know what? If he, if he died and was resurrected in faith, we believe in him, we trust in him. What are we are to do? He is the author and pioneer of our faith. We follow him. If he waited on God, we can wait on God. Because there's nothing we can do about it anyway. Now what can we do when we struggle to trust God? What? Well, here's a few little things we can do. Number one, seek. Seek truth in the Scripture. Learn about God's character and His faithfulness. He cannot lie and He does not change. He will do what He says He'll do. We can also confess. Do you know that God wants believers who don't trust Him to tell Him we don't trust Him? And sometimes people say, Oh my gracious, I can't believe you'd say that. I'm saying it. Read the Psalms. God, how could you let this happen to me? God, why did you do this? Uh, tell God your heart. Tell Him your heart. You'll be surprised what that will do. Share your concern with another believer. Do you know why God puts us here for one another? It's to listen to one another, strengthen one another. Nobody's going to think bad about you if you doubt if you struggle, that's what's happening in the church today. It's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Nobody can doubt. Nobody can ever have a doubt. I'll tell you this story. I shouldn't. When I was in seminary, I was going through what they call textual criticism. This is where you have to go through the Bible when different places have variants in the text. And you have to go back to the original and you find this variant and that variant. All these different variants. And I'm going to tell you something. Scholarship can be dangerous. Because I had an inward struggle in my heart right in the middle of seminary. I didn't even know if I could trust the Word. I was struggling. I went to one of my professors. I said, look, there's four different options here. How do you know what's right? How do you know? Struggling. And I would have thought he would have said, well, go to this resource and read such and such. This is what he said. Have you ever told God? No. Why don't you tell him? Tell him what you're struggling with. Well, I will, but are you going to give me something to read? No. Tell God. And I'm going to tell you something. I went in that library and I poured my heart out. God, you've sent me here to study and teach your word. and I need confidence in it. And I need to know how, to, how do I deal with that. I don't even know what to do. And I'm going to tell you something. By the end of that semester, it was amazing what God did in my heart and life. But tell him. And now, by the way, folks, I'm fully resolved, fully resolved, 100% that what you're reading is absolutely God's Word. It's amazing. And the more you study it and the more you dig in it, the more amazing it becomes. Share. Spend. Spend time with the Lord daily. Take bites out of the Word of God every day. Look. 
Look for things to be grateful for. God is so good to us. He's so faithful. Do you thank God for your eyesight this morning? You ever thought what it would be like to live without it? Greg was up here talking about Fanny Crosby. Can you imagine having, having your sight taken away? Did you thank God for your taste buds this morning when you drank your coffee? No, we just get up and drink it down, don't we? Do you thank God for your fingers and hands and the ability to walk, to hear, to smell? I mean, look at the stuff we take for granted. For teeth. You know, you live in West Virginia and have all your teeth. That's, that's something to be thankful for. I just said it before you all did. There's a lot of things to be grateful for. Allow. Allow the Holy Spirit to lead in your life. When He shows us things we should do, things we shouldn't do, yield. Yield to Him. And then, maybe the greatest, learn to wait on the Lord. Wait. We have to be patient in life. I am learning the older I get that life, and especially the Christian life, is mostly a waiting game. Waiting. We have to wait. God is not in a hurry, is He? Oh, He, oh, he moves at a snail's pace sometimes. We want things to get over with, and God says, no, no, I'm not worried about the outcome. I'm more worried about when you go through the trial. You know, there's this song that comes on, The Father's House. Boy, I like that song. In the Father's House. If you've never heard it, you need to look it up on Spotify or something. There's a line in there that I never really heard until one day I was listening really close. And he's talking about, you know, when you get in the Father's house, all the fears and things just just go away. Here's what he said about life. Arrival is not the end game. The journey is where you are. You never wanted perfect. What you wanted was my heart. I heard that and I had to go back and replay it and replay it. Arrival is not the end game. God's goal in life is not to just zap you and take you to heaven. Arrival is not the end game. The journey is where you, you are. When I go through the brokenness and the struggles of life and the pain and the distrust, God, there you are. You're there in the journey. And you never wanted perfect because you knew you weren't going to get it in me. What you wanted was my heart. And so, God, I give it to you. Father, thank you this morning for this summary on faith. Trusting you. And we know, Father, that when we trust you, it pleases you and it strengthens us. May we have these six characteristics in our life which bring pleasure to your heart and strength to ours. And as the writer to the Hebrews said, strengthen our feeble knees. Give us courage and strength to live our life unashamedly for you. And help us, Father, in failure and disappointment not to quit, 
because we know that one day we will be with you and things will be right. But until then, the journey is where you are. Be with us in that journey as you are and strengthen us as we walk by faith and not by sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.